Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Bill Glover, who is actually kind of transitioned out of the kitchen. He's no longer in the kitchen on a day-to-day basis and is now the CEO of Ray Ray's Hog Pit, which you can find their food trucks uh, in Franklinton by Land Grant Brewery up in Powell uh, by Noctera Brewing. They got the location in Westerville, and they also have the location uh, by Ace of Cups in Clintonville. So they got four locations for the food truck, Meet and Three out in Granville, which is a sit-down restaurant that we had James Anderson on previously to talk about Ray Ray's, you know, the food trucks and all that starting, but also Meet and Three, which is kind of his latest project, Pride and Joy, thing that he really wanted to open for a number of years too as well. So he's been super focused on that. And Bill joined Ray Ray's team after getting basically laid off from the Hilton and started helping with some kind of back office organizational type things and has basically stayed on since and is helping kind of transform all the Ray Rays into a more consistent, you know, you can get all the sides at all the different locations and ingredients, stuff like that too as well. So, and they're doing some new things. They just did kind of a battle of the bones thing with two different sauces that they were kind of had competing. And one of them is going to stay on the menu for the, the rest of the year at the Ray Rays hog trucks. They've been doing some unique stuff too, but Bill is somebody I first encountered, like most people did, at the Gallery Bar and Bistro inside the Hilton Hotel downtown, across from the convention center in the short north there. He was there for a number of years. Before that, he had Sage American Bistro, which we've had, you know, Chris Dillman on, who worked there previously too as well. He's a sommelier. And then he's now with Ray Ray. So his career has really got three stops, but there is a gap in between. You know, there's not a whole lot of information on Bill from his early days. So we kind of get into that and where he's from and how he got into cooking and, and all the different stuff with, you know, Sage and how the opportunity with the Hilton came up and and then going through coronavirus and all that stuff, the Hilton and staying on. And he was tremendously influential in the Hilton property that they opened up in Cleveland from a food and management standpoint. Up there, they opened that kind of right before the Republican National Convention, which would have been a couple of years ago. But also he was played a really, really big part in kind of the dining part of the new Hilton Tower. That's about to come out in a couple of years. They'll officially open that. I think they're almost done actually building the outside structure. We get into all that stuff too and kind of if he thinks he'll be back in the kitchen and, and kind of when and tinkering with some pop-up ideas, stuff like that too as well. So it's a really interesting conversation. I think most people think, you know, chefs, when they kind of quote unquote age out of the kitchen or move or transition out from the kitchen that it's just all kind of back office stuff and doing paperwork, but there's more to it than that. And, and Bill kind of goes into all the different stuff that he touched on after kind of ascending from your executive chef role into this culinary director, culinary manager type position that he had with the Hilton. And that's information that I I don't think people really talk about. I don't think people really know. So it was super important and it was awesome to get Bill on the podcast, who's one of our loyal listeners in the industry, which is pretty cool too as well. We always appreciate, you know, anybody who's uh, consistently listening and uh, helping spread the word. So you can follow him on Instagram at Chef Bill Glover. It's a pretty awesome account to follow. He doesn't really post like anything about like Ray Ray's too much. It's a lot of the stuff about his travels, different restaurants he's eating at and stuff too. So if you're a foodie like me and you just kind of like looking at different restaurant pictures and wonder what some of the experience would be for a restaurant you haven't been to, it's a good follow. He travels around pretty frequently. And then also at Ray Ray's Hog Pit. That's the Instagram for all the food trucks and everything. And you can also follow Ray Ray's Meat and 3 out uh, in Granville too as well. Prime rib on Wednesdays is kind of a special that they do. Like I said, we've been out there. We had James Anderson on the podcast talking about it. And it's the food's really, really good. It's a different experience. It kind of is more akin to the 
you know, if you're in Texas, any legit barbecue spot, you kind of have to drive like 20 minutes for. I mean, there's a couple downtown, like in Austin and stuff like that, but a lot of them that you're kind of driving outside the city. So it, you kind of get that feel up here. So it's definitely worth the drive, you know, to get out to Granville and, and check that place out. Pretty easy drive. But without further delay, here is my conversation with Chef Bill Glover, the former chef at Gallery Bar and Bistro in the Hilton, now the CEO of Ray Ray's Hog Pit. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. This is going to be a little different episode because you're kind of not in the kitchen as much as you used to be, at least day to day running a kitchen and everything. You've taken over a different role. So we'll get there. We'll get to all that and kind of what you're doing now and, and how it's different from what you've been doing, doing some research like I do on everybody. And you have kind of almost like two, three stops in your career. So there's like a lot of unknown information about what happened in between and stuff like that. So that's kind of the, the cool stuff that I want to get to. So now you're from Columbus too, right? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on. I, uh, I really think you do a great job with this show and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Originally, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, a small town called Newcastle, about 40 minutes north of Pittsburgh. It's where my family roots kind of started. When I was 11 years old, I moved to Ohio. My dad, mom transferred to Ohio. My core family now lives in Pittsburgh, my, like my mom's side, cousins, aunts, and uncles. And we moved to North Canton, and that's where I kind of got to Ohio. That was in like the mid-80s, and then I moved down to Columbus in the late 90s after graduating high school. Just to Really, I, I stayed home, worked for a year in a couple kitchens, just kind of figuring out what, what the next step was. A couple of my buddies that went to Ohio State the freshman year, they came back for their sophomore year, and they needed a roommate. So I always joke that I went to Ohio State socially. Lived on campus with a bunch of art students, had a, a very college experience, but I was going to work every day. Working at um, my first job when I moved here was at Jefferson Country Club. I was I worked there for a number of years before they had the fire, and that's when I moved that job on. But that's kind of how I got to Ohio. Was your first like restaurant job? Was that it? Like working at a country club? How'd you kind of get started cooking? So I had a really great early influence from my family. Is where I would have to say it started. I have tremendous cooks on both sides of my family. Where my mom was a great cook in her own right. She's a Italian descent. Her whole family is like 100% to the vote. And we had a very Italian culture on Sundays and family eating was very robust and with a lot of people, with a lot of dishes. I was exposed to a lot of cool things that even when I was young, didn't realize I was kind of learning. I was taught what ingredients mean, the value of them. Carrot, it's not just a carrot, it's a seed that was planted and picked and washed and driven and all the things that associate with that kind of thinking of ingredient procurement and creation. So that was a really amazing part of what I guess I've realized now that I look back. And then my mother, that's my mother's side, but my dad's mother was a chef owner of a restaurant. So like as a kid, I was around that culture and scene, as well as the big eating with the family dynamic on my mom's side. We do that in the day every Sunday and then go to my other grandparents' house for like dessert. My grandma would make pies and we'd eat like a meal there in the evening. And that was kind of like the family dynamic growing up, which I was very blessed to be uh, exposed to all that. That's really what kind of started my curiosity and my love for cooking and just seeing people cooking around me and doing it for pleasure really kind of inspired that early push. So at 11, I had a paper route. And on that paper route, there was a small family restaurant called North Point. I knocked on the back door one day, sick of throwing papers every morning as a young kid. I was just, I didn't want to wake up every weekend and you know, crack a dawn and throw newspapers. Yeah, I said, can I work here? 
And he's like, yeah, I have a dishwashing position open. So I, I took the job uh, serious into baseball growing up. So it was, I needed a job that had some flexibility with scheduling so I could like play season baseball and like things around that. So like I, I took that as a like a first job and like air quotes if you will. But and I got my ass kicked. I about, I about got fired a few times. I, I couldn't keep up. Like I, I was weeded every single weekend. And the owner's wife was very kind to me and bailed me out and just tried to teach me about hand speed and how to think about efficiencies and moving the dishes through the machine and the, the sink not getting backed up and just learning how to move properly in a kitchen. She just helped me kind of get a little bit of that feel. And then, you know, you get a little bit of that as playing sports too. You kind of feel people around you. And I, I think that young experience of just feeling weeded and even the panic of being in under the pressure of a rush, all of that was like, a little bit scary, but it was also kind of like exciting. And I kept chomping at the bit at that job. Hey, let me do some prep. Let me do some prep. And then one day they're like, fine, you can do some prep. And I grabbed a tomato and promptly snipped the tip of my finger off after him warning me a million times to please be careful. And I assured him that I did this all the time. And two seconds later, I'm in the corner with a bleeding finger and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, nothing, you know, just trying to blow it off. But it is what it is. You know, I stayed at that job for a while beyond that and really kind of like learn some basics. And so I, I was successful in the position that she taught me how to do. And I finally got there. And then like around the corner in the same plaza was a, a like a quick serve sandwich shop that a couple of my buddies worked at. And they're like, hey, dude, you got to come work over here. The boss is awesome. He lets us smoke weed in the cooler. You're going to love it. We can eat whatever we want. I'm like, well, that sounds like paradise. So like, and I get paid more. So I like put my two weeks notice in and I just went and got that job. But that's where I really learned hand speed in the art of working a big flat top, which is like a thing. Like there's just a, there's a skill set there, but that taught me a lot about like organization of working on a call system and hand speed and working fast through order systems and banging out food. And that was just like a fun job that I, it was literally like a party. Like you'd go to work, you'd rip a joint and just station up and it'd be like fun. I mean, we had so we had to do chair jumping contests in the dining room in the winter when it would snow, like we'd have our friends come in. We just, we had fun with it. It was a fun job. I didn't take it seriously as a cook, but I didn't realize how much I was learning while I was having fun. So then eventually, like you said, you wind up in Ohio and, you know, you're kind of hanging out with friends and everything. And at some point you decide to go to culinary school, you went to Columbus State. For about 10 minutes. Okay. So, yeah, I wanted to get in that. You didn't finish, right? Columbus State does a great job with it for what they do. I, I did not finish. I went for one semester. My mom was really like, please go get a degree. She just wanted me to get a degree. And she's like, what are you, what are you moving to Columbus for? I said, I'm going to go cook. She's like, you're never going to make any money cooking. I was like, I don't care. I don't want money. I just want to play my bass and cook and live on campus. It sounded like the perfect thing to me at 19. And I did it. I don't regret any of it. But in that, her encouragement was she bribed me. She's like, I'll pay your rent if you go to college. And I was like, hmm, let's try it. So then I get like, the way I think about things is I kind of, I go all in. I really dedicate myself to learning everything you can about something if I get involved in something whether it's a hobby or even like in this case it was like I was really excited about the job I was in at Jefferson at the time and I was learning so much about food it was just igniting this newly found passion in me that I could do this for a living and be respectable and it's not like a line cook at a corporate American restaurant that like we all have heard a million names of like I, I did a little bit of that after that short order sandwich job and originally, that was my ticket to move to Columbus because I was going to transfer. Well, the summer that I was working two jobs before I moved here with the plan to move here, I signed a lease. I got a job down here. 
well, before I got a job, that company was supposed to transfer me and it closed, like it went bankrupt. So I had a lease sign moving to Columbus. Now I have no job. So I came down here and I stayed with a friend of mine that was a neighbor growing up and I got a job. I went to Jefferson Country Club and I interviewed with the chef at the time. And he's like, cool, you have a job, come back on September, whatever. I remember when I moved, it was September. And he's like, come and, you know, you'll get started. So I go there that day, knock on the same kitchen door that I walked out of after being hired. I asked for Chef Blair and they're like, he got fired. I was like, are you shitting me? I need, I said, I have a job. And they're like, we don't even know who you are. So they're like, well, let me go get the new chef. So this, the guy that came to the, he darkened the door. He's a big man. His name is Charles Langstaff, Chuck Langstaff. He's somebody I still communicate with and, you know, look to as a person that was a big help to allowing me to get started because he honored the offer in sight unseen. He's like, listen, I don't know who you are, but I'll give you a chance. If you cooked, I gave him a little background about like that brief period of my life. Basically after high school, I really kind of did get into a cool kitchen there for that summer with a, a real chef at a club. That was my second job before I moved. And I told him about some things I was doing and he was like, all right, I'll give you a chance. And I caught on real quick and he, he took to me well, and he's somebody I've, like I said, kept in contact with. He gave me a job later in my life. Like he actually gave my first manager job later at a different place down the road on the career map there. But that's kind of what started me at Jefferson. And I was really learning a lot. And then my mom was like, well, go to school. And then I, he encouraged it and it's fine. It's a good thing to encourage. It's just that it doesn't work for everybody. And the way I learn, oh man, I cannot sit in school, man. I cannot do it. It fucks with me. It's like mass hypnosis. I feel like I'm trapped in there. I don't do well note-taking. I'd rather just look and learn. I'm very kinetic. If I can touch it, I can better learn it. No, nah, school is not my, my thing. And I, I, I did it for a quarter thinking, okay, I can do this. This is a little different. Do it to take some of the basic classes and all that. And I get that, but so I said, all right, mom, I'll do it. I went and the first quarter was great for some reasons. I was excited. I went in there with the right attitude. Like I want to be the president of my class. I want to be a leader. I want to try to do this the best I can. And I got there and like the kitchen part was the part I didn't like the most because I just felt I was getting similar challenges at work, learning if not more because I had more accelerated exposure to different things as far as food and cooking and international cuisine. And it happens just much more rapidly at a work environment because you're feeding the same membership. And I'm like, I'm getting paid at work to learn as much, if not more. And I don't have to turn in things like math and English and all the things, you know what I mean? Like I love English. I like writing. I'm a good speaker. I'm a good writer. I'm good at writing it's things of the nature like that. But I didn't feel like I needed to read a fictional book and write a report about it. I just felt like, what am I doing? Like I, the teacher and I got along great. Uh, we had some fun, but I couldn't get my head around it. And then what brought it to a head was I was in a baking class and the time at work, I was actually handling and making quite a bit of bread. And so I had some familiarity with it. And I was questioning the chef at the time who was actually mixing dough to make baguette, which is a high hydration dough. So it's pretty soft and wet, but I could tell it was, I questioned its hydration level being too high. This is in a different era. He spun around, berated me in front of the whole class about how, what do I know? You're here to learn, not to question. And this whole like kind of archaic way of managing that used to very much exist in this chef world that I spent 30 years in. And that was it for me. I wasn't into it. I didn't feel like I was learning. I didn't want to be addressed like that. So I just took off my apron and ended that part of the school. I finished the classwork just because I wanted to complete what I started in that regard. 
And I just stopped going. I just went to the office of the uh, recruiter that I spoke to. I told her my piece and I thanked them and walked away from it. And I just went hard in the paint at work and I read everything I could and applied myself as much as I could and worked for some really talented people that took to my hunger for knowledge, which that translated into me working hard for them. So it was a good payoff. And, you know, that was my path to learning. That was for me what worked. There's a lot of ways to do it. With all that being said, I know how you'd answer this, but if somebody in one of the food trucks or whatever comes in, you know, it's been working there for a little bit. It's like, I'm serious about like one day wanting to open my own restaurant and do this, you know, as my career. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you say? I say go to business school because you can use that any way you want. You can go to culinary and you will learn business things within the curriculum and any culinary program offers that, of course. But what I think is more valuable is you can develop a food product without a $60,000 culinary degree. If you can market it correctly and if you can make it consistently good, a business degree will pay off You know, in perpetuity. A culinary degree has parentheses on it a little bit. What year is this when like, you go to culinary school and then leave? Mm-hmm. Like 98, 99. So fill in from 98 to basically April 2008 when you opened Sage American Bistro. What happens during that 10-year period that like nobody knows about? Yeah, that was when I was working in the private club sector. That's, the, that's what was going on. I mentioned briefly, I had two jobs the summer before I moved to Columbus. And at that job, I, one of the jobs was at a country club down there. And the chef that was there, she was like formally classically trained in Europe. And she came over here. She was English. And she came over here and she recognized, he referred to cooks as having talent. And she was the first person to apply that to me. And I never heard somebody, like I like I mentioned, I played baseball. People are like, you're a really talented baseball player. So I'm like, oh, I know what that means. I've never heard it applied to me as a cook. Like nobody ever gave me that. I'm like, what do you mean talent? Like she's like, well, you have an eye for things or you have like presentation skills and you lay out displays really well. And it just came natural to me because I have an artistic side to me. You know, like I can visually visual arts are a strong suit in my high school years so i translate that into cooking i'm like oh that just kind of plays into that so when i moved here i was gravitated towards country clubs because of what i was saying earlier i saw a lot of food rapidly changing menus large amounts of specials because again you're feeding the same membership so it offers like really high food cost budgets so i'm touching amazing ingredients working with highly skilled chefs because the budgets at these clubs to hire the best is their like goal and the kitchens are really nice the the schedules are friendly because it's really a you know holidays you get january off all these things that restaurants didn't offer so when i got into that club world it just really offered me a lot of that like accelerated cooking learning sort of like school and you know i stayed at jefferson for it was like two and a half years and then there was a fire there valentine's weekend it was uh literally during service i was prepping for service in the cart barn, like a couple hundred yards away across the property, had an electrical fire that surged into the building that nobody knew about. Occurred like in a storage area where there was nobody at the time. It was in Valentine's Day. There was no golf pros there. It was in their offices or something like that. And then a fire, half the building burns down. So I'm like, well, this sucks. This is not good. You know, there's my job. So I hung on there a little bit just to kind of see what was going to happen, but it just didn't work out. And then I got a call from Chris B. Was the executive chef at the time at New Albany Country Club, and he said, 
it heard through some folks that are, you know, members that I was looking for something more than what I was doing, which is basically like raking sand bunkers and shit because they were waiting to build the club back and figuring out where we were going to do. And I was just like, I'm not a greenskeeper. So I was thrilled that he called and offered me that opportunity. And that's when I went to New Albany Country Club, which is which was a watershed moment for me as far as a cook and learning and being around the way he ran that kitchen in those years and the level of cook that was employed during those years that I worked with. We all became executive chefs and did things that were that we can point to and be proud of. And that was probably the strongest group of cooks I worked with. And in that couple of years that I was there, just really, it was amazing. He did things like he invited master chefs in to do like charity dinners and like I got exposure that I would have never gotten in a lot, a lot of places the couple of years I worked there and blew my mind. And at that same time, I was uh, about to become a young father, which is when I left there on for really no other reason than to take a, my first management job, which is back to Chuck Langstaff. He was at the time the executive chef at the Crown Plaza downtown. And there was a restaurant that's now Max and Irma's that used to be called 55 on the Boulevard. That was the last of a restaurant group that was like the precursor to the Cameron group. There was like a, I don't know, there was like eight of them or something like that. It was like the 55 group. And Chuck Langstaff was the original executive chef for that group who really opened up the Columbus dining minds. It kind of began the education process to say, okay, this isn't corporate American food. This is a, a chef driven concept for one of the first groups. I mean, there was, restaurants that were doing it but not like a group of restaurants that said okay let's try to seed this around the neighborhoods of the city cameron came from that group and then cameron cameron's group has done that in a much bigger way you know the next generation so to speak and so on and so forth but that's where i worked at the last 55 as the sous chef so chuck langstaff hired me as my first salary manager job i think i was 24 at the time that's that. And then I worked there. It was a short one. That was nine months in the restaurant closed. I got to work one day and they're like, we're going to change to Max and Irma's. We'd love for you to stay on. I'm like, what happened to the French bistro idea, which was like tabled in the beginning of my like, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to change our concept eventually. And this is what we're thinking. And then the powers that be, which I'm not in those meetings and I understand why, but they, you know, I'm thankful they offered me an opportunity rather than severance, but I wasn't looking to work at Max and Irma's. I was looking for, you know, chef driven stuff. So. After that, I um, kind of just put my name in the hat. And that's where I broke away from the club world to go to that job. And then after that is when I went to um, work at Barcelona for a couple of years. I worked there. Kyle Katz owned it when um, I got hired by him. And then the ownership changed to Scott Heimlich, who owns it now. And it, I left that job to go to uh, back to the club world, actually. I went to uh, Ohio State Faculty Club. I worked there for almost six years, actually a little over six years. So that was like back to the club world. That was my first executive chef job at 26. So there I am like, I'm like, wow, this is the goal of mine. I want to be an exec chef. I want to run, I want to run something. And the way that worked is I took the sous chef job. And then like nine months after that, the chef was like, let go. And then I put my name in the hat in October. And I said, let me run it through the end of the year. My goal is to simply not give you a reason not to give it to me. I understand that you have to do a search. I recognize I'm a first timer and that I have learning curve stuff to do, but the exec director there, his name is Jeff White. He's still there. Uh, he gave me a shot and I worked that October through December. I put out all the holiday stuff with the existing team. Um, we rallied, we pulled together. And at the end of that year, I went through a series of interviews with the board and 
I was given my first uh, badge as executive chef, so to speak. And I stayed there for uh, almost six and a half years. And that's where I learned the, you know, the business side of like kitchen operations and, you know, tracking the, you know, inventories and purchases and food costs and the things. That was a wonderful education. And I was blessed to have that opportunity. And that's what really built my confidence and through that network to branch out on my own in 2008 to do Sage. So when did you know it was time to branch out and do your own restaurant? That's the next step for me. Let me start putting together a business plan and all that stuff. Um, about five years into that job, Chris B, I mentioned the chef that I still have a relationship, positive relationship with. He, I talked to him here and there over the years. And at one point he said to me, he's like, you need to get back out there. You're don't typecast yourself with that. Like sometimes you can get stuck in a job and you just like cruise. You know, and he basically was just like encouraging me not to get content and do what you want to do. And like my career objective on my resume when I was 15 was to own and operate my own restaurant someday. You know, my mom's a home ec teacher. So she said, write a resume, go get a job. If you want to go work at that North Point, I walked in there with like a one line resume. I'm like the catcher on my baseball team. And I had a paper route. That's the progression, you know, and that's my, you know, mentor, Chris, that it, pushing me to do more. And then, and then I, my family had this ongoing dialogue. It was from my grandfather, who's a huge influence on my life. Um, Marshall Rossetti was his name. He, he was in my ear since I moved to Columbus, like, we're going to get you a restaurant. I want you to be in business. If you're going to do this, you got to do it like this. You can't just go down there and cook for a bunch of people, make yourself the money, you know, like figure a way out to do it on your own. That was an ongoing dialogue. And I, when I got to the restaurant world, when I was at Barcelona, we had, I had a lot of fun there. And it was the first time I was like talking to a reporter about food or like we were having articles written about dishes that I was creating and stuff like that. It was a, my first dip into the public, if you will, from a press standpoint. That's fun. That's fun. It's real fun, especially when you're young and you've been working hard and it feels good to get that, you know, recognition. And going back into the club world was good because it taught me that like business side that I felt like I couldn't go invest family money where I was leaving Barcelona. Wasn't, I wasn't comfortable enough with the business side to go to say to my family, yeah, let's go do this. I was confident enough as a cook, but not enough as an operator. So a lot, a lot of those you know systems that I picked up working with uh, the Ohio state team was what gave me a lot of that like confidence to push forward, to do that. Uh, in 2008 when we did. Sage American Bistro is before my time. So what was the the concept vision that you had for the restaurant? There was very few. Richard and the refectory, David Tetzloff, and G. Michaels. And I mean, Barcelona's was like, there just wasn't a lot of, there's a lot more of that now in a good way. And I'm happy that's the case. But at the time, it was a really bad year recession-wise. There wasn't a lot of restaurants opening, but I was just like ready to go and I wanted to do it. I don't know. It was just, I felt like it was time and the network was right. And I found the right lease. It was uh, just lined up. And the team I had around me, the people that I wanted to go into this with as operators at the time felt right. And I, I don't know, we just, it, it just came together. So being a first time restaurant owner at that point, what were some of like the unexpected challenges that you faced? It didn't matter how much you prepared, like until you actually encountered it, you had no idea what it was actually you know like. Yeah, I mean, the finances will hit you right in the head when you're a creative person like me. You know, that was definitely a big... The hard part is, is when you're trying to be creative and churn out menus and be like out there, it's hard to do learning curve that I think a lot of chefs have that trouble. It's a development thing that you have to get to, to really sustain long-term 
you, you don't have to be an accountant, but you have to have an understanding of the economics and the and the and the theory behind the business. I think that's the part that you have a hard time learning until you do it. I did have an accounting person on our team that helped me a lot. You know, I have people in my family that helped us a lot. My grandfather, he'd stay up every night and look for my batch to come through and did his own accounting just for his own fun. He, he was a CPA his whole life. He'd just sit up, just bang it out. So that was probably my biggest thing. Like the hours didn't surprise me. The workload didn't surprise me. I knew what I was getting into. I'd been around it. But I didn't know about that part. That part was unexpectedly heavier than I thought. How did you go about like constructing your staff for the restaurant? At that point, like you mentioned, there wasn't a whole lot of other restaurants in that kind of similar upscale concept that you were doing, you know, food wise. If you start kind of picking people from quote unquote competitors, like at that time, did that get kind of weird? Was that kind of like a thing that people weren't supposed to do, like an unspoken rule? Or did you have people that you already knew, like when I opened my own thing, I'm getting this guy, I'm getting this guy, I'm getting her, I'm getting her. Like, how did you go about doing that? Uh, kind of. I had a GM. It was a longtime family friend. So he had a lot of front of house experience and he was very good at dining room service, running the operational front of house cocktail menu, all weaknesses of mine. So I felt good about that. That, that was, that proved to be a successful uh, way to start. And he did bring in a lot of business. It was like, he, he was just like a great, he, he just got to know everybody. You know, that was just part of like, that was one of the key people. And then the rest, we just kind of put it out there. And I said, let's see what we get. And we just put a call to say who's coming. And I mean, you know, you know people. You, in the short time I was in the sort so to speak public guy when I was in Barcelona and briefly 55, you start to network. You know, even going to school for one quarter, you get a network from that. I still talk to guys that do that. They're all selling food now, but you know, they're out there still in this market. But I believe that building Teams, putting teams together, selecting the right people to do the job is one of my core strengths. Very good at assessing skill and reading people that see bullshit. I know people are full of it. I know people are genuine. And then I think when I do assemble that team, I'm good at bringing the best out. So sommelier Chris Delman worked at Sage for a time. He's been on this podcast. Give me your best Chris story from his time, like whatever stands out. I very much valued the time I got to be around, work with Chris and be around him during his training for the master, just to see the dedication and the level of uh, expertise that he has regarding wine is fucking fascinating to me. Like I've seen him break down like the finer points of something like in a discussion format. And it is just, it's, it's amazing. I very much enjoyed working with him. He is wickedly funny, deadpan, wickedly funny. One of the funniest stories I have is one of our, Mutual dear friends is, uh, his name is, his name is Chet and his wonderful wife is named Debbie. And I just recently hired Chris at Sage and these two were regulars of his from Rosendale's when he was formerly at Rosendale's and he left Rosendale's and came to work for us at Sage. And these Chet and Debbie came in and they, they always sat at the bar and Chet is a special kind of asshole in the most endearing way. Like, I love him. I love him. Like, it's a love. Like, I, I've grown to have a truly, he's a, a person I, I look to for advice and like sage old ass, old man advice because he's an old ass man. But I joke with him about that, you know, but in, I got there through this dark humor that Dillman has that, that the way I was introduced to Chet is through Chris. And this is now I'm learning Chris. This is like, I'm getting to know Chris, who I've heard about a lot about 
He's like, hey, Bill, he comes. I'm in the kitchen. He's like, Bill, I want you to come in, come out here. I, I want to introduce you to a couple wonderful regulars of mine. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know, and I'm like, cool. I'm tightening up. I'm like, go out. I'm like, hi, how you guys doing? And Chris is like, Bill, first of all, I would like to uh, introduce you to Debbie. She's a wonderful human being. She's so sweet, charming, lovely. And this miserable, cancerous piece of shit sitting beside her is named Chet. Or like he said, like a cancerous tumor of a human being named Chet. And I was like, oh, like, <laughs> okay. Like he, Chris is fucking with me as much as he is with them. And that was my introduction to Chet. And he's just like, oh, great. And I shake his hand and I'm like, what's the deal? And he's like, yeah, he's just an asshole. You'll learn over time. You'll see. And that was like week one with Dillman. And that was like the beginning of my understanding of his dry, dark, dry. <laughs> we did restaurant week. First week we ever did restaurant week. Like first week it happened. Like it was that 614 is like, I think first ever or something like that. And we got crushed every single night all week long like it was saturday night i just mismanaged like the first two nights and like we ran out of desserts and dillman came back in the kitchen and he he had a pack of sweet and low torn open on a plate with a straw and he's like can i offer this for dessert <laughs> i was like shit man it was just you know he's just got that like classic dry humor that is endearing and and his wife too she's they're both wonderful they, they're, they're both good peeps why did Sage ultimately close? It's a, there's a lot of there's a lot to that one. I took the job at the Hilton. The, the way that worked, I we were in business about six years. Five years in, I'm sitting at the bar one day during Mother's Day week, and I'm with my mom and dad, and I'm in like regular clothes. And the GM of the Hilton is still there, named Chris Coffin, who's one of the most important mentors of my career at this point. He was just a solo diner sitting at the bar, and he's at one point he was just like, man, this poor he just made a comment like you do. Then the next course, he was eating this chicken dish. And he's like, oh, gosh, you had this chicken. You asked me. And I said, I should introduce myself. And we just started talking. And then that's how, like, I said, who are you? And he explained, I'm in town from Boston, this and that. So that's kind of like, this is kind of the beginning of the story and why Sage ended, I think, a lot of it. So I leave on a day-to-day basis. And I leave it in the capable hands of my team, who are all incredible human beings to this day. And I think the world of all of them. We separate from a day-to-day basis. So I go to the Hilton and I open downtown Hilton with a big team of people there. It was an amazing experience, right? So we're doing this thing. Meanwhile, I'm also carrying the responsibilities of the restaurant, but I'm largely leaving that up to the day-to-day to the team that, like I said, I left. And this was a decision we made together. We talked about, like, I couldn't have even considered the Hilton thing with the family investment and the things that were going into the restaurant. I didn't want to displace that team at the time. And I didn't want to not take this opportunity. And I felt like we could do both. Well, you know, about a year later, it just was too much for everyone. My not being there enough was a strain on that team. It was a strain on you know, I wasn't supporting them the way I did before because I was doing this other job. That proved to be too much. It ended abruptly, actually. But, you know, that was hard for everyone. It felt like, for me, it felt like a death. For them, it was hard for them to want to keep doing it because it wasn't fulfilling. And they, much like myself, got opportunities that they're looking at. Like, look, I've been doing this and we're not, it's not getting there. The numbers aren't there. It just faded because... A lot of things go like that. When you step away, it changes the dynamic. And I learned a lot about that there. So they went to most, they went to Cleveland. They went up north and worked for Sawyer, which, uh, you know, obviously the time for them was a very good opportunity. Jonathan was 
killing it with the greenhouse. They went up, had a great opportunity to work there, propelled their careers greatly. All of them are kicking ass. I, I truly, like I said, like at the time, it was real hard. There was a lot of feelings. I get what they did. Why? I, I don't have any hard feelings. I love all those guys. We've all come together. We've all broke bread. We, you know, we talk. We're cool. And I kept going at Hilton. They started all kicking ass in their own right. They're all still kicking ass in their own right. So it's like you learn. Looking back on it now, from where you're at now, would you make the same decision again? Oh, 100%. I, I don't really spend a lot of time in my rear view mirror. I like to learn from it, but look through that windshield because I'm better because of that happening the way it did. If I'm uncomfortable, I'm learning. And I was real uncomfortable for a while there. We sold it. I paid everybody. Didn't owe a bunch of people. You know, cleaned everything up. Move on. I would do it again. It, it gave me an education like uh, nothing else could. If you were to open Sage today, Sage 2.0, do you think the reception in Columbus would be the same? Would it be greater? Would it be like it was before? Hard to tell. I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of, oh, I miss Sage. I get a lot of that. And that's positive. You know, that's like just like sharing positivity about memories that were created by people in that building. I have my own. Our staff has their own. Some of it's good. Some of it's not good. Restaurants are a thing, man. You know, they're emotional places sometimes. I'm not perfect. They're not, you know, they're not perfect. I've had guests tell me to fuck off, right? My own restaurant. You know, it's like, God, human behavior in restaurants is a, a real fascinating combination. I wouldn't trade for the world. I love it. I, I, I still love it. I just like being in restaurants. I like the environment. I'll never sick of it. I went to Ghost Rider last night. And I just loved being in there. First of all, that place is ridiculously amazing, but there's a feeling that I just have of comfort in that environment. The chaos is comfort. So now you're at the Hilton. Are you doing everything at the Hilton? So you're doing gallery, bar, and bistro, but then also the room service and then any sort of banquets or weddings. Like you're doing all that, right? So, all well, a very, very amazing team. Yeah. If shit happened, it was my fault. So yeah, I was the executive chef of the whole building or the whole culinary program. But there was major players that were seated right underneath, like as far as on an org chart, when I say underneath, you know, like I had Todd Goodwin, like on my separation of this, the last, I, I was there about eight years. So Todd Goodwin ran banquets. He's still there. Amazing. Easily one of the best chefs in the city. An amazing leader and an amazing cook. And uh, Josh Kayser, who was there for the majority of Gallery's run, was instrumental in the day-to-day operations of not only the facilitation of the restaurant, but the menus. He and I worked together on and off for like 15 years. So like he and I had a lot of commonalities with our style and some of the approaches we took towards cooking. Josh and I actually met at 55 on the boulevard. I was the Sioux and he was one of the really good cooks. And we just hit it off and became friends and we worked together over the years at numerous jobs and this was the last iteration of that you know working partnership where he was the exec chef of the restaurant so to answer your question we did like my team and there was 41 people on the culinary and stewarding team so i was responsible for guiding and partnering with these other qualified professionals to create what we did at the hilton that did include, to your question, room service. There's the coffee shop downstairs. It's like grab-and-go food items. There's the room service menu. There's a bar menu. There's a breakfast. 
lunch and dinner menu. There's also catering menus that have different tributaries off of them. Yeah, that's a robust program there. That was the best education I could have. I mean, that was like, you can't buy that. You can't pay for that. So when you get in that like style of environment, Matt Walton, he was at the Guildhouse and kind of similar, but you guys clearly were doing way more stuff. Is it more about managing like your time and kind of volume than necessarily, I don't want to say like then focusing on the food, you're still focusing on that, but it's a lot of like, do we have time to do this? Will this fit within this block that before we have to move on to the next thing kind of thing? The further you go, the further away from the food you get in the hotel, like volume structure. Right now, that project's going to a thousand rooms. My role there as the executive chef of the 500 some room hotel is not going to get me there if I'm still there as the thousand room guy. It's just, there's an evolution there that has to change for everybody and everything. It's a, it's a growth process that they're all undergoing. But to your point, yes, like I can't, I have to rely on Todd and Josh within their roles, within their departments, within the department to facilitate the needs of their area. I am in the role I had more of an overseer of like a consulting like piece of like, how are we doing this? I step in and help. I'm, I'm always like available to help, but it is less hands on the food and more administrative and more directing traffic and to your point, time management, making sure that things are happening more so than they are physically doing. Josh is now, is he at like the Columbus Club or Columbus Athletic Club or something? Josh is um, involved in a project, Kona. Oh, he's involved in that now? It's going to open in Dublin. Like, I don't think it's Kona Scratch Kitchen. Is that the name? I I don't, it's Kona something. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, he's been working on that project. Todd remains at the Hilton running the whole thing because they've scaled back due to COVID. There's just not the volume to support the team. And that's the reason I was separated from there. It was late June. First of all, COVID hit right before Arnold, which was like a massive event every year. COVID hit. Arnold goes to no, no guests. Then the bottom fell out with all the events and bookings. So we, we, you know, it was just cancellations, sweeping cancellations. Um, for about three months, our ownership supported an initiative where we did, um, meals for our employees. So the convention center and the hotel makes up for like, I think it's like 500 eligible families, basically. At the time, our culinary team was left intact because, you know, back then we were like, oh, this will probably be a couple months. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And that was sort of the objective. Like, well, why don't we do a meal pickup service so our staff can, we set up a whole system, like with an ordering system. And then like our culinary team produced literally by the end of it, it was like, it was like a 90 day initiative. We did over like 14,000 meals for free for our staff, for our staff and the convention center staff. And we just did it like they pulled up behind the hotel. We handed them a bag of food for however many they asked. It was just like, it was like salad, entree, two sides and a dessert every day, weekdays. So that was an amazing thing that one, it, it kept me employed while we were kind of seeing what was happening. But then that, that initiative was really built to try to stem the tide between government assistance kicking in. And when that started happening, you got to take a look at things. And that's where it just kind of got really, really tight. And that was towards late June. And that, when, that was where I was furloughed. And at the time, it was like, all right, well, let's take a look at this. We'll probably have you back in September after Labor Day. That was just the way it was kind of strategically looked at from a Hilton perspective, which I, I got that. You know, I, I was grateful that I was able to stay on for as long as I did and support the initiative, which I was proud to be a part of that team that did that. And uh, at that point, 
Chris came to my office and, you know, regretfully, he's like, I, I got to put you on furlough. I said, I understand it's my turn to win September. Cool. I left the Hilton. I called James and I said, Hey man, I just got separated for a few months. If you need any, need any help. And at the time COVID was affecting him from a volume perspective positively with no restaurants. The, the business model is carry out. It's perfect. It's like, it's built for it. His numbers were actually elevated and he was immediate. It went, yes, I would easily use your help. The next day I just showed up at the headquarters where I'm sitting now. We just went through some conversations and some goals and some thoughts about what or how I could potentially be effective in a short-term capacity to maybe take on a few projects or do a deep dive on our vendors or, you know, just things that, as he puts it, I have bandwidth to do. Like he, he refers to my bandwidth. I get a kick out of it. <laughs> but like, and I did. And I just applied some of the things I've learned at the Hilton all these years on how to be better at procurement and work in deals with vendors and understanding where pricing structure really can be that an operator in his capacity hadn't maybe seen the pricing I got to see at Hilton, which he wouldn't have never seen. But I, I offer that, as he says, bandwidth. So it was like, hey, let me crack this code a little bit and see if I can help this company in these brief moments. And hopefully it helps me pay for myself is the way I was looking at it. You know, I, I was just grateful he was helping me. And I felt really amazed that he was so generous with that. And then I wanted to make sure I was making it uh, a, a positive financial impact on the, on the information I was hoping to discover. So then we're working together for three months. I'm having fun. It's neat doing something different. Then I get a letter from Hilton. They're like, we're going to keep you out for another year. Like we'll pay your benefits. You're, we're going to separate you for a year, which was a little longer than I expected. It was something that it happened. It is what it is. I pivoted. James and I talked immediately. We were already discussing the idea. James and I talked about working together years ago. And it was just like, well, I can see it. Like it didn't come together then. And then this time it was different circumstances. And we made it, we made a situation work out for both of us. And, and we came together. We've been the last couple of years now. It's been, uh, changed a lot of things for the better. It's been a lot of fun doing things that don't have to do with cooking, like using my skill set in other ways. It, for me, it's been a challenge to be, I've challenged myself that how can I be an effective and good leader that has no cooking hung on it? Because I've always used that as my leading strength. Like I'm a good cook. This job isn't going to, that's not going to matter here. It doesn't offer, he's not looking for that because he's got that in his own. So it's great. He's a damn good cook, you know? But like one of the biggest things I get is like people think I'm the chef at the meat and three and I'm not. I'm not. I'm proud of what we do at the meat and three, but I want to set it straight. I, that's James's baby. That's 20 plus years of influence coming together in his vision and view. Does he ask me, what do you think? Sure. And that's where I can pop out a, here's an opinion that you can take and take it or leave it. And it's not, it's just, a wonderful working relationship in that way. But the credit is due where it is due. That is James's restaurant. I'm proud of that restaurant's food and what we've done out there. And I love being a part of it in the way I have, but it's not with a knife. When you're at the Hilton, did you like doing the banquet stuff at all? I feel like that's from people that I've talked with. Most chefs hate either doing the banquet stuff or doing breakfast. You nailed it, man. Of course. There's very few people that like doing those two things. So it's like a really unique thing. Okay. So here's the way around that. You get a real good banquet chef named Todd Goodwin, and you you don't have to worry about a goddamn thing. He is amazing. 
And he will tell me, you hire me, you don't even have to worry about it. And it's not that I don't watch it. I'm so confident in his ability that if you build your team right, I'm okay with saying that in front of my team. He's better at that than I am. It's okay to show vulnerability. It's leadership. Like he's better at that. Josh is really good at running restaurants. His skill set's more like mine, like our backgrounds. Todd has done more banquets and his mindset. It's a different mentality. It's like our pastry chef down there, Brian Wildrow, who's one of the most talented cooks I've ever been around in any capacity in 30 years. The way he thinks as a pastry person is entirely different than I do as a passion, a little pinch, a little pinch of that. Like that's how my head works. Brian will tell you, I don't like making bread. I love making bread because it's more like kinetic, hands-on. Brian's exact rulers, every, you know, perfection. And that's why he's so good at what he does. Todd is similarly like that. Todd is so detailed, so clean, so organized. Everything's perfect. He shaves his head every day. He's regimented. He's disciplined. Josh and I are a little more wild. Difference in headspace and how we are effective at what we do. But when we build our teams to support our weakness or support our vulnerabilities with the strengths, you can do that. And if you do that with transparent leadership, it kind of makes everyone feel like uh, they're contributing to the better the better whole. And, and when you're in a big team environment, like a hotel like that, very important because, and you lose your team, it's real hard. So when you were there, like, did you ever feel not even just at the Hilton, but also, you know, working at the country clubs and stuff that like stigma of being a corporate chef like, I don't think it really exists anymore, but there was a time period where it's like, it just seemed like if you weren't running your own restaurant or opened your own restaurant, you were at this tier below like everybody else. If you were a corporate chef and like you worked for this corporate entity or something like that. So did you ever feel that during your career at all? Or I sure did right before, like when I met Chris Coffin, like he's the GM of a hotel. Like in my mind at that point in my life, I don't, I'm like, I don't want to work at a hotel. Like, I, you might as well put me at a hospital. They're going to tell me what I have to make. They're going to hand me my menus. I have institutionalized cooking in my head. Like, I can't wrap my head. I don't want to go do that. And I so, plus, I'm saying to my mom, who's encouraging me to, like, take the interview, at least. She's like, just talk to him. Just see what he has to say. And I was like, I don't want to work at a hotel. That was my immediate, like, hot take, if you will. To your point, like, or to your question, like, yeah, I had this, I want to do this certain thing. And in my head, 15 I wanted to own and operate my own restaurant. And when I was in my 20s and got my exec chef job, I said, I want to do that by the time I'm 30. I realized that at 31, it just circumstances and the way it all landed and all that. And then this hotel opportunity popped up unexpectedly. And my immediate defense was to go to that thinking like, well, I'll be uh, stifled. I won't have my creative freedom. I won't. And also, I know now that I, I couldn't have articulated it then, but I was also like, well, that's going to be like, I could get exposed. You know what I mean? Because that's like, shit, can't fake it there. You know, and there was things I was insecure about as an operator on I had say, of course, I was young and doing it for the first time, but I was I was incapable of admit, admitting that at a younger age version of myself or seeing it, even, even realizing it was happening. But, you know, in my network throughout that week, I met Chris on like a week. I think it was like a Saturday. The following Sunday, like one week later, after knocking this around in my brain for a little while, he came in for brunch on a Sunday which is a really popular thing about like Sage brunch was like its own thing on Sundays, but he came for Sunday brunch and he's like, Hey, I'm doing a tour tomorrow, 25 or so like local food and beverage professionals. If you want to walk through the hotel, I'd be glad to have you. It's like, sure. So at the time I, our bartender and I 
drove down there and we did this walkthrough. And during that week, I gave it a lot of consideration on this job. I talked to my team. I mentioned earlier, I said, hey, if I go for this interview and I get this job, are you guys going to leave? And they're like, no, go for it. Like it was long, like very shortened version of that. I went into this walkthrough and I pulled, at one point, Chris kind of broke away from the group and I kind of took the opportunity to step aside and say, hey, have you selected anyone for the uh, chef job yet? And he said, no. Why? I said, well, I'd like to put my name in the hat as a candidate. He was like, are you sure? What about the restaurant? I said, well, I don't want to get rid of the restaurant, but I feel like a lot of people do both. Why can't we use that as like, that's that restaurant. This is the downtown version of something I'm involved in and spin the marketing on that. And he had a similar idea in mind before even meeting me. He had an idea. And when I get there, maybe I could find somebody local that has a reputation that could come here and kind of dispel the hotel restaurant demystify it or like the people that just say oh you don't eat at the hotel that's this common problem that we and many hotel restaurants are constantly going up against um and we never could we had a very hard time shaking it the entire time we had gallery at that place but very difficult in that way it was on the second floor you can't see it from the street and it's in a hotel it's like strikes against you before you even like have them come through the door but that was a challenge that we pushed through as much as we could. And for the most part, we did a very good job considering the hurdle that consistently was. So 2015, you got the opportunity to cook at the James Beard house. How did that come together? Because from what I can find out, you were the first Columbus chef, I think, to be able to do that. And maybe the only, I don't know if anybody's done it since. Yeah, a couple of people have done it since. I think I was the first. Some of the guys from the Cameron group went I think Brian Henshaw led that group. Like, I'm not sure what year, but I know they went. Since, of course, James and uh, Spencer have been nominated as, uh, you know, Spencer Boudreaux. Pistachio Vera. I meant like actually cooking at the James Beard House like you got to do. Yeah, that was ridiculously awesome. I, it was a career highlight that I'll, I'll never forget. And I'm so very grateful I got that opportunity to go with the people we went with and share that. That was incredible. Did they reach out to you or how did all that kind of come together? I got an email. Just a random email? The corporate executive chef for the Americas is named Mark Erler. So he knows some people there. From what I understand, a couple of people mentioned like, hey, this this person's worth a look. And then they vet you out and you get invited. And I know he was part of that vetting out process. And then it's like, you can get invited, but it's not cheap. So like people can get invited, but you can like, if I had Sage and got invited, I would have had to say no, because the cost is prohibitive. Yeah, you're on the hook for all the food costs, right? Everything. It's great. And it's an honor. And I'm, like I said, I, I did it with the help of a lot of people in our community. And it, it was made possible by like the Hilton Experience Columbus, Columbus 2020. They're all contributing factors on what it took to get us there. And we made it about group of us. That was kind of a part that made the expense go up. It was also a big part of what made the story more about Columbus and not me as an individual. It was, uh, we brought a farmer, like James came, actually, James Anderson came and he raised three animals for the menu. And he was in the room that night. We did, Travis Owens came and did cocktails. Colin Bent from Seventh Son did, you know, we brought some beers. We Dave Rigo from Watershed was there and we tied everybody together. So it was like every bite of food they ate was raised or from Ohio, everything, literally 100% of it, which was a big theme we wanted to do. We wanted to really bring Ohio and say Columbus is, this is Columbus, a group of us from 
multi-facets of the food and beverage and farming community coming in and showcasing what we can do. And I did one piece of it with the food. And the team that I brought was some of the early team members from that time at the Hilton. I guess middle of the road, I guess, as far as my tenure there. Uh, and James is, like I said, James was one of them. He helped me cook for a while and then he went upstairs and ate, but you know, we did it. It was great. I even had a, we had a DJ put together a four hour play set with artists born in Ohio. We brought coffee from one line for after dinner. Watershed was in the cocktails. Seven, seven. We only had four wines that were European. That was the only thing that didn't have Ohio ties. Yeah. We went in there and we did the damn thing. It was amazing. I being with Hilton, I was fortunate. I tied in with the New York Hilton and they gave me some space to prep the days leading up so the morning of i just packed up everything and like we finished a lot of food in new york josh and i prepped most of the menu in columbus packed it into large foam like containers like that are actually big fish boxes that we got from one of our vendors and we labeled each course per box packed an expedition and drove one way to new york right to the new york hilton unloaded and then did our finishing steps for three days. And then the morning of the uh, dinner, we just drove over and put out there. It was like 85 people. Throughout that like stretch there, is it just every day more and more like anxiety building until it finally like is done? Or were you able to embrace each step and each part of the moment and actually like take it all in? Yeah, I loved it. I didn't have anxiety. I had excitement. I had a lot of planning, which helps me not have anxiety, but I don't like, I lean into shit, man. I don't cower from like hard stuff or I love that opportunity and to do it with the people we did made it so much more special. The planning stages were very detailed and a lot, a lot, a lot of emails, a lot of back and forth, but it, you know, it was just really to make sure that night went exactly how we planned and it did. I just set up a calendar. It's like, all right, this is the night. Let's work backwards. Here we are today. Let's get there. Both Daniel Kamel and Aaron Klaus worked at Gallery while you were there. They've both been on the podcast. So give me a story about each of them that stands out from working with them. Dan Campbell is one of, if, I mean, he's one of the most talented cooks I've ever been around easily. I admire his cooking. I look up to him as a cook. I know very few people that can have such incredible sensitivity with ingredients. Dan spent a lot of years with me and I, I, you know, I'm a mentor figure to him. His quick wit is, I mean, I've laughed so hard at his like deadpan one-liners that I, <laughs> it, it, it'll always bring a smile to my face to think of some of the things and how he kind of addresses situations. Even, you know, he's playful with the old school, like chef call. It's kind of ridiculous to be chef call, chef call, yeah, chef call. Like it's kind of ego chefy shit to have like this, you have to ask to talk to me bullshit mentality that a lot of people do and then gets that and he gets it he, he's he gets why it's funny he'll text me chef call I, I like that guy a lot he's grown a lot we've had hard conversations we've had good conversations um i, I don't know i got nothing but good things to say about dan aaron's equally as talented in a different way very specific to pastry his creativity knows no bounds he's got an, an incredible mind for pastry he uh He's just, he's the same thing. He's just got such touch and sensitivity to the, the soft ingredients that pastry is and like the fluidity of his design and the way his presentations look are just outrageous. So one time he walked into my office and he handed me a piece of, he handed me a pork rind that was caramelized and salted. And I'm like, what? Like, 
I probably, I don't know if I ever thought of that. You know, it's just like those are little things you get from people. You hire good people and you get out of their way and you let them do some things, you know, and both Aaron and Dan had their struggles too, you know, like they have their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses. And as my, in my role, that was part of my role with them. And they both presented plenty of opportunity to sit down and have those moments. Um, I presented that opportunity to my bosses over the years, you know, like I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not in that same seat, but that's a big part of my role with both of them has been like strong conversations about being better and wanting to improve. Before you wound up separating from the Hilton, were you going to be involved with that new tower that they were building across the street? Was that part of the plan for you to do both or anything? Or was that going to be its own separate thing? Oh, right. I spent nearly three years on that project designing literally the blueprint of the kitchen was on the full, the, like I had like a four by three blueprint on my desk for two years of the full wood fire kitchen, the restaurant concept on the roof. I pitched to a board of directors or board of a committee that said, yes, we approve this concept, march forward. So the concept was, and it still is in the restaurant, is a, it's a wood burning, uh, a wood implements, wood burning implements, like a, a big hearth, a pizza program, you know, a three meal a day restaurant. But it's like the whole, the whole thing started three years before RFP went out to even get the thing built. So then that gets approved. And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like my job, it's amazing. is going to get even more amazing and teach me this entirely new level of understanding of what it is to go from 500 to 1,000. So, well, you got to get started, right? So building these things obviously takes years. So you got to get the thing drawn before you can even put a shovel in. So those those happen years in advance. Cleveland, the, the hotel they built in Cleveland, I was very much involved with designing that kitchen with our executive chef as well. Like as within my role at the Hilton, I was uh, asked to do some extra or like some involvement in that project and opening that hotel, helping with the Republican National Convention when it opened, which was an amazing experience from just a production, nothing political, but more of like a go do something that's major in a brand new hotel and help facilitate the function of all those things happening all at once in a brand new building. Like, And, and just being able to be involved in that design process and that hotel opening while we had already opened. Because I go through it at Hilton and they're like, oh, there's a new one up north. Go help them. Then come back. And hey, by the way, we're building this one into a double. We're going to double the size of this hotel. We'll go from, you know, over double the pro forma from a food and beverage uh, perspective as far as like annual budgets and like staff sizes and like dining room size. Like it just went from 500 to 1,000. The meeting space tripled. Like, the, you, you know, like that's that's not... That doesn't happen very often. There's not a lot of blueprints for how do you do this? So that that's where you start like, okay, over the next few years, while we're designing this, we want to send you to, like they did this for all department, all department heads start develop a plan. Like, okay, go visit these properties that have the most alike qualities to what ours will be. Learn these things, see how they do things, develop your own thinking on how we're going to do it in our new system. And then there's this big process built in, which is, set up our leadership, our, our GM to help our leadership team not acclimate as we go to be prepared when we arrive there. We can't, like I said earlier, what we knew to be successful in our roles within a 500 room hotel will not translate directly to this, this thousand room thing. So the plan pre-COVID was to build all of us through all of these leadership initiatives and trainings and traveling to different uh, sites to accumulate knowledge and to prepare ourselves to be best equipped 
for this sudden growth, it'll basically just be like, okay, we're open. And within that, yes, I was saddled with the program of, I, I gladly got on the saddles of any way to put it. I was happily in charge of uh, the concept idea. Like, and I said, this is what I'd like to do. We've decided as a team on a few ideas, but I was really big on this wood fire thing. I didn't get pushback. I got support from our team and we presented it to the people that we needed to for a vote. They said, yes, we start building it. Then the upstairs one at the time was um, a yakitori concept. I, I'm not sure if that's going to be what it is now. I, I don't, I'm not privy to that information. I can only tell you that until I was separated, this is the track we were on, you know. But that's from what I understand, they're still moving forward with the Wood Fire Restaurant, which I think is really exciting to have that downtown. I think that's a great concept. I think they're going to do it well. And I'm excited to go eat there. You know, I have relationships with those folks there. I left with no hard feelings. It's a separation of COVID. It's one of those things. I just, the whole program was effectively, the way I was looking at it was, we would have to bring in, obviously, more talent, more people to manage what we were building. But COVID did. Then once you become, you know, CEO of Ray Ray's Hog Pit, October, I think you're officially announced last year. You know, obviously your startup work before then, though. But one thing that was unclear in there was when did you and James Anderson first actually meet? I, I know you guys have been friends for a while. Right around the time when James did the podcast, we'll have sometimes the Guy Fieri show on in the background. And, and he did an episode of that. And you are sitting at a picnic table on there. And I don't know how many people know that you're in there. Yeah, I get some now and then texts from people I know, like, I just saw you on Food Network. And I know it's the episode. There's a few quick, I, there's a few quick spots where I'm in that episode. He invited me to just be an extra, like, like, you know, they ask you to bring some folks in. And James asked me to be there that day of filming. And I got that quick little spot. But to answer your question, I met James, I think it was like 2009. He, he at the time he was at um, Pace Mountain High, like his truck originally was up north a little bit. At Pace Font. Chris Dillman is how that's the connection. One day I was at Sage and it was a Saturday and I walked out into the dining room. We were a dinner only place. So Chris was like sitting at the bar eating, like getting ready for work or whatever. And I walked out into the dining room and this smell of smoked meat just smacked me in the face. I was like, where the fuck did you get that? He goes, oh man, Ray Ray's right up the street. I was like, really? Like, a, like I didn't know. I, I said, I've never heard of this. He's like, it's kind of new. It's a food truck. I was like, sweet. I'm going to go. I'm going to like, I was like, think I'll go tomorrow in my head. And I went down there on a Monday and I'm like, looking for this food truck. that's nowhere. I can't find it. And I'm like, I swear he said Pace Mountain High, but I didn't think it moved. So I just didn't put it together. I didn't see, I saw Chris like that Wednesday. I'm like, Hey, I went down there. I didn't find it. He's like, well, they're only there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I think at the time it was weekends only. So, okay. So then that next available day, I just went down and yeah, I think he triggered. I think that day I might have gotten some tattoo work done. And I had my, it was a cold day and I didn't have my arm in my sleeve. But James said something. He's like, oh, let me see your arm. And I just showed him. And it was like a conversation starter. And we just started talking. And I told him, I heard about him. I'm, I own this restaurant up the street. My bartender, you know, he told me about you. I can't wait to try it. It was just kind of like one of those things. And I went down to work and Chris was like, oh, isn't it? It was like, that was how I met James. And then I told him about me and he said, you should bring some food down sometimes. I'll trade you. And that was like, that's still a thing. Like I brought him a couple things and I remember it was a very pleasant experience. We, we hit it off in a way that was like, he ate the food and he recognized that it was different, like, I, you know, different kind of cook. And I ate his food and felt the same exact way that this is not just like barbecue. This is something really special and obviously crafted by hand. And there's a lot of love and a lot of 
skill in this. This isn't your normal everyday barbecue. And we just became friendly that way. And he started eating at my restaurant, you know, his wife and him got engaged at my spot. Like, you know, we just, we developed a mutual respect for each other that has been sustained through all these years. You know, we had some hobbies we share. We have, you know, it's not just work all the time too. So what's been the biggest difference for you moving from the kitchen to now kind of like this office behind the kitchen so to speak, role. Kind of what I was talking about earlier, my job at the Hilton was more office than kitchen. So I kind of transitioned a little bit mentally there, but this role is really not food at all. I mean, it's food, it's the food business, but it's not about creatively popping out new dish ideas or new menu ideas. The food knowledge that I exercise that's useful to me now is like, sometimes James will bounce, like he's like, I'm thinking about this way to make this. What do you think? Sometimes I'll be like, yeah, that's the way I do it. Or I can say, I like that way. This is another way just to give for, you know, just to offer data for information or decision making. Like, it's not really do it this way. It's just, here's a concept. And I, we work well together like that. He doesn't need direction. He Sometimes it's nice to have input. That's the difference. You know, I enjoy the administrative side of my role here because it is different. It is something not food specific, like a little further away from Hilton. Like I could say Hilton was a nice transition from being at Sage where I was literally the cook until leaving. And then the team that was there was the creative cook. And then at, at the hotel, I wanted to be the cook and the GM, Chris was like, you can't think like that here. That's not going to be effective. You got to let them do that. And so you do the, the administrative stuff. You've got to you've got to find a way to disconnect or, or you don't have the right person. And I was able to disconnect and Josh was able to push the food out, like, you know, good quality top 10 restaurant food, if you will. So I, I did learn some of those skills there to help me kind of continue that transition here. I love cooking. I don't like miss having my hands smell like garlic and onions every day. I don't miss that. I don't miss being burned all the time. I cherish those years and they're they're forever going to be a part of the fabric of who I am as a person. I'm a cook. Like I am a cook. Like I, I, I'm proud of that. I'm, there's nothing that I'd more rather be than a person that loves to make food. It's what I like to do. But I love running a business in the aspects of like team and supporting others' growth. Working with James has provided me with personal growth that's been welcome. I would like to believe he would feel the same way. We have an open, transparent communication that's possible because of the relationship that's had a, over 10 years behind it. That, that offers us both a lot of trust in the ability to be honest and to know that he knows that anything I have and like how I'm looking at decision making has him and his family's interest in there every time. I've enjoyed pivoting, if you will. I know that was a very overused word last year or the, the past few years, but the hell else is it, man? I just lean into it and say, okay, this is what's next. I got to wake up ready every day and just go get after it, you know? What's been the biggest challenge with the food trucks? Because you've never dealt with food trucks before. So that's kind of a new component, even though you have done all this, you know, management behind the scenes type stuff. Common answers, staffing can be a problem. You know, like that's like the, the normal kind of challenges that many face that we're not special. Like from an operations standpoint, you know, it's not, it's not all that crazy different. Like, I mean, it's a group of people that I love our crew. Like we got, I, I, I like the type 
of like spirit they have. There's a uniqueness of who we attract as employees that I like our diversity. I think that we have an incredible um, group of people that are very unique location to location, which is my team. Like that's a thing we manage. Not a bad thing. It's just like part of what you see when you have multi-location businesses, whatever your business is, you're going to have microcosms at each business. There's leadership at each business that gathers once a week. So we have this like core tenant cultural philosophy that we want to lead with and people focused company and those kind of ideals. And like, well, you know, we want people to have work-life balance and all those things, but it's challenging. You can say you want it and you can say you do it and you put in steps to do it. It's human nature's hard. You know, that's the biggest thing. Like our intentions I would like people to know like our intentions are good and decision-making, but sometimes when you're in leadership, not everybody doesn't always agree with you. And that can be a challenge for some. It's a, it's a, it's a position I've been in a lot for a lot of years. So I'm not unused to it. It's not necessarily ever easy when someone's kind of fighting the current, but it's something that you, you learn to push through with respect and like to their concerns or whatnot. But you just have to like kind of have a steadfast approach sometimes when you're making changes. And this last year, we've made a lot of changes that uh, we've collectively agreed are for the better. And it's it's not necessarily like a broken situation. It's more just like an organizational step of certain aspects of what we're doing to help streamline efficiencies and, you know, opportunities for growth become easier. You know, when we have things like organized at a level that we do, things are easier to read and see and just like, show things and show our work and those kind of things. So it just improves like peace of mind and where we stand on stuff, you know, but that all comes down to like the people we bring in and the culture we try to promote and ask everybody to kind of get on board with. And that's, that can be tricky. And like, it's cold, it's winter time. Sales do dip when it's cold out. So like there's morale factors that go into a human being that are completely unrelated to work that affect work. You know, that's, that's indicative of every job. There's, that, that's a challenge that many leaders face. It is a challenge we also face. You know, there's things that, that, that do come up. First, yeah, that's probably, that's probably a big one, but it's not really truck specific. It's just really the environment that many of us are in right now. Barbecue and pizza both ship really well. Have you guys explored, considered shipping nationwide or partnering with something like Gold Belly to reach, you know, customers that have moved from Ohio to, to different states? I think Ohio depending on what list that you look at is like one of the top 10 states that people are like moving out of. So with that, you know, you have Ray Ray's fans that move to different parts of the country, but can't get Ray Ray's where they're at. So is that something that you guys have considered, explored? It's been tabled as like, there are others in the market that are doing that successfully. And with comes down to quality and specs, like I'm open to a lot of things if it can be done without sacrificing those things, you know, like it, those are the core tenets of what you've got to like kind of figure out if you're going to open the door to these, those types of opportunities. Like we as a company have to ask ourselves, do we want to see Ray Ray's barbecue sauce on every grocery store in America? Is that who we want to be? I don't know. I don't think that, I don't think that's who we want to be. I know that in, in our leadership meetings, when we're talking as a group to decide on who we want to be, I don't think that's it right now. Like I, I understand there's lucrative opportunity there that we're saying that, nah, but like, there's also a commercialization aspect that can occur that can stretch you out a little bit from how you're perceived from a, a brand. A brand, and you know, we do want to grow, but we want to grow the right way. We don't want to sell out, and the perception of selling out or one of those things can happen when it goes too fast or too thin. 
And that's what we want to definitely protect against. Did you ever consider leaving Columbus to cook in a different city when you were still in the kitchen? No, because it's more because I have kids with moms I'm not with. And I'm not saying that. I've never looked at that as a limitation, and and I never will. I've always just, relationships are tricky, man. And I have positive relationships with the mothers of my children. I care for both of them very much, but we're not together for a reason. But that also gives me, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, I could go here, I could go here. I could. I could do all those things. When I was with Hilton, they pushed me to, for instance, they said, we want you to move to Cleveland to open that hotel. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I got a kid that lives here. So that's part of it. The other part of it is kind of what I was touching on earlier. I just, it was probably more when I was younger, it was probably the time to do it. I didn't have the right situation to make it seem like it was the right thing to go do. I did my own restaurant. So that was like when my daughter was young, like, like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. Like I think that was the years somewhere like in that bracketing of her life. So that was young years. I'm not going to move then. My son's in that bracket of life now. I'm not going to move without, I, I need to be in his life. I just find that to be way more important than moving for opportunity. And I've always looked at it like, this is where I live and this is the city I want to make a mark in. And there's really no if I put limitations on that, it's in my own head, not because of what this market can allow me to accomplish. If I put my head down and do the damn thing, I went and got Sage open and it really propelled me into a good spot. From a press standpoint, it was really kind of the point where I got some people getting like, man, he's in another fucking magazine, like getting shitty about it. And I didn't write the dang things. I just went to work every day, you know? But it did kind of come up from some my close friends were like, you're getting a little shade out there because it's too... I, I, I felt... I didn't know how to take it because I, I never happened to me before. I just opened something and it nothing else opened in 2018 either. So I was like, it was a rare thing to happen. It was a slow news year, if you will. And we did a good job. So there was a lot of good positive press. And then that propelled me to the reputation box check that Chris Coffin wanted to find in a candidate. And I had enough of the club, club experience to make them comfortable on the banquet side to give me the job or give me a chance at that thing. How has the food and restaurant industry in Columbus changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change? And where do you think Columbus as a food city is headed for the rest of this decade? Involved a lot. Like I spoke a little earlier about like when I got here in the late 90s, 55 group was like the only like group of like chef driven restaurants. There, like I said, there's a few one-offs. There were some places that were doing it. Nothing like today. Then Cameron came and I really believe elevated the education on what service is and how restaurants can be glamorous inside and they can really turn out huge numbers with consistency. And that really just brought another level of education to the local dining scene on what's possible beyond corporate swag, you know, that is so heavily peppered, not only all over America, but highly concentrated in Ohio cities, you know, highly concentrated. So that that was a big part of what I think helped. And then in a, like alongside the Cameron Empire, the independents started percolating to the top and kind of coming up through and finding their success within that, the large budget style like groups like Cameron has, you know, and that's where the market started to widen in that segment a little bit, starting in around that 2008-9 time frame, like probably more like 2010. And it's continued to grow since then in a good way. And I'm not saying I did anything to make that happen just I got in on the front end of a 
pretty big boom that's happened over the last 20 years, you know, and it's been fascinating to see. And it's been great to see. I think that Columbus gets, I don't think it gets enough credit. I've eaten all over Cleveland and Cincinnati too. And I know a lot of, I've chef friends in both cities that I have tons of respect for and their food's amazing. I don't see why we don't just get, I think we're right in the same, like we're, we're right there. It's not there. There's, it's unfairly not brought up in the cities of Ohio being every bit as good as the other two to get all of a lot more national press. Is there anything that you think needs to change or stuff that you would like to see the city eventually have, whether it's certain style of restaurant or cuisine or something like that? Yeah, I love like, I love little food restaurants, you know, like tiny food tasting menus. And like, of course, I love that nerd. Like I'm a food guy. That's nerding out. That's like nerdy shit. I went to Audrey a month or so ago with James and Todd and straight up blew my mind, you know, and like we went to the Continental before dinner and then went to Audrey after dinner. And it was like the Sean Brock weekend. And I can't stop thinking about it. Like those are the things that fuel me. I don't necessarily need to create food, but those kind of things like last night, I had a burger at Ghostwriter. It was phenomenal because it was so well made. Like that stuff triggers my soul and it gives me lift. It makes me truly happy just to experience the craft of cooking that I didn't have to do this time. But I, I'm, I understand it and I know how difficult what they're doing is. I want to, I wish we had more of a, I wish our city could better support Veritas for what exactly it is. I, I, they're doing, they're supporting Veritas more now than ever, but like, why can't we have multiple restaurants that can offer that level of cooking? I think it's a talent. Talent's hard to find at that level. But it's also like how many restaurants like that can Columbus support is the question. Do you think you'll ever open another restaurant of your own or are those days behind you? You know, I don't go into always never very much. I can't say never. I can see myself like someday. Like I could, I, I've thought about it'd be cool to have a bar, you know, maybe get a bar with some cool like small food menu. Something like that would be an easy job. Easy is the wrong word, but way less involved in like my last role or my current role, which is a lot of hats. And it's a lot. It's a lot. Running this company is like drinking from the fire hose someday. I love doing it. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't shy away from it, but there's going to, it's not necessarily sustainable for 20 years. It, like I want to help this company grow and I, I want to have fun doing it. And I, I, you know, we're getting a lot of that stuff underway and. But there's an end game. There's a piece of life where you don't want to work like this forever. And I could see like, be hard to detach maybe, but I could see like buying a bar and just like having fun with it, something like that. But full blown, like put your neck across high street every day and let the riders drive all over it. Probably not. That probably not. What's the best stadium you've visited? Because you visited a lot. I think PNC Park. That's so, It's just gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Cowboys Stadium is... State of the art. I was fortunate uh, to get a deep dive tour of that. Yeah, you were standing on like the end zone. Yeah. When I was with Hilton that year, that 2015 was a phenomenal year. It was a year we got invited to the James Beard thing, but it was also a year I got invited to represent the Americas at the Owners Conference, which is every two years for Hilton. I was flown out to Dallas to cook for like 3,000 people from all over the world. And there's 14 chefs from all over the world. And I was like the American guy. As part of that five-day thing, we got like, you know, like wine and dine. It was amazing. And, and one of them was a trip to the Cowboys Stadium. And we got this big tour and like the bowels of the stadium. Like we got to go into the kitchens, the locker rooms. We were on the field. They like let us go throw balls around and do whatever we wanted. But like that place was like state-of-the-art. It was outstanding. Best restaurant experience that you've had when eating at and visiting? 
Grace in Chicago, Curtis Duffy's restaurant. I went there. It's probably like 2014. Uh, it's no longer. He has ever now, but I ate at Grace. That was probably my best. Audrey is right there that I recently was at that. That was, that was right there. Some of the experiences I've had just being in the kitchen with other chefs is where I've had some of my most like memorable bites, like being involved in the dinner where those are some of the most, like some of these menus that are on my wall behind me are really just snapshots of a moment in time that were collaborative events that I'll never forget because I can look at these and remember that dish. And I have a hard time remembering things I cook. Like people are like, remember that thing you made? I have no idea what you're talking about. But like I can look at some of these and remember because they triggered things that I never thought of. Some of my favorite chefs, the way they cook, make me think for days about their food. That's what gets me going. Favorite tattoo that you have? I don't know. I basically have three. My right arm is one artist. My left arm is two artists because my hand is a different guy than the rest of the sleeve. I don't know if I have a favorite. I I, I like the idea that, that people can choose to have that form of self-expression. There's a lot of stories or reasons that you kind of create the ideas and what, what somebody chooses to wear on their body and there's nobody's right or wrong you know that's that's the beauty of it there's no like people get tattoos that are jokes like i know a guy has like a lawnmower on his chest and he just shaves a spot just for fun like like okay there's nobody can tell him that's not okay so like i I think that when i first got tattoos it's like i was like hey look at look look how cool this is i'm like an idiot i got made fun of then i'm like okay just Leave it alone. That's somebody else's business. I don't, I just leave it alone. I just look, I admire. Sometimes people say, Hey, I like your work. I say, thank you. I don't know. You get a lot of, I get a lot of feedback. I get people walking, like people look at me with shade. I've had people like stop and like start touching my shit. Like get the fuck away. Like personal space people. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a favorite. I just, I, I, I like them. I like wearing them. I like getting them. So the question comes from uh, Chef Matt Harper. He's the executive chef over at Commune. He's a previous guest on the podcast. Left behind a question. What are some things outside of cooking that you do that have made you a better chef? I breed fish. Saltwater, freshwater, what? I'm pretty knowledgeable on this subject because my dad has had fish like my entire life. So I've been in the fish keeping hobby for about 15 years. I started in saltwater. And about 10 years ago, I transitioned to freshwater. Right now, I keep freshwater stingrays. I have a trio of black diamond uh, stingrays, two females and a male. So I'm, they're young, but I'm going to breed those. But I've bred uh, South American discus for a while. I've got some Penang tiger turquoise, about 30 of them that are really amazing looking. They're tigers. Really cool. I got some, I've done various breeding, but I got to discus last and I, I made good money doing it actually. Like I, I had about I bought 10 at the beginning of the pandemic for 250 bucks from a guy out of Germany. And I raised those up and sold them about a month ago for about $3,500. And I turned around and bought three stingrays that I can breed and sell those pups for like 500 bucks a piece. I'm super passionate about fish keeping. I love doing it. They give me a lot of peace. It's really technical. It's a daily need. I have to feed and Water, I'm the keeper of the water. That's the way I look at it. Like if the water's, I, you know, pH, I, I track all that shit, but I, I do it at a high frequency because it's a living animal that depends on their well being, depends on my care level. And I'm, I take it serious, the husbandry of their care seriously. 
Yeah, my dad has saltwater fish now. He started out in freshwater, I remember, as a kid and had discus and angelfish and all that stuff and eventually switched to saltwater and now has, you know, anemones and live rocks and tang fish and, and all this stuff in the basement. So I did all the saltwater. That was my first foray into it. I uh, went really big into the big tank saltwater thing. I did Fowler because I didn't have any... I, I love angels and I love coral eating fish. So I just, I did anemones. I did some anemones and some like urchins and stuff like that, but I didn't go coral because I wanted like a lot of angels and I liked fish that eat coral. So I just stuck with live rock and did that for a lot of years. And then actually the way it happened, I had a friend that got killed on a motorcycle and he had two fish tanks and his brother didn't know shit about it. And I was into the hobby. When he died, I told him, I said, Hey man, if you need help moving these tanks, I'll help you like learn how to do it. I'm sure he, because he wanted to keep his brother's fish, but he's like, I got two tanks. I don't want two tanks. I said, well, I'd love to take one. Like this person was somebody very special to me, like as a friend and it was tragedy. And it, you know, and, and to me, I was like, if I could take his, uh, one of these fish tanks, it would be help. It'd be cathartic. It would be like part of my healing. Actually, it very much was. And I, I got the tank, set it up in my house and I would spend time with it. And it would help me kind of get through that morning of my friend suddenly dying on a motorcycle and it began this like process where it was planted and there was organics and I was looking at aquascaping and it fell right into my skill set as a like a, a chef with my spatial ability and my sculpture like acumen for balancing visual arts and like the way things look it, it played right into that skill and I immediately got really passionate about it I started studying Amano uh, a lot of the Japanese guys George Farmer out of England. Uh, these are legitimate like aquascape artists that have museum level quality work that legitimately are in museums all over the world. And I like went hardcore into this shit. And I literally went from one tank to 10 freshwater tanks in an entire fish room in my basement with over 2,000 gallons of water total. And I had every scape was a bio, biotope, basically. It was like all these plants and wood are from this exact river and these fish are too. These rainbow fish are all from this place in India. You know, and I just did that. I did like wild Peruvian angels. Like I, was, I just went all in and just went into that on a super technical level. But to your question, you know, it all falls into the same thing and it gives me an outlet. It gives me a, a space to release some of those chef-like stresses and it, it, you wash the fish swim and it's natural or it's organic. It plays into like those skill sets in a lot of ways, but it's not work. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. What profession would you have chosen if it weren't for cooking? If you didn't go down cooking? Like I wanted to be a race car driver, but my mom said, hell no, that's too dangerous. I still do. I love cars. I love cars and going fast. Uh, this is a listener writing question. They wanted to know how important to the business is P&L? Uh, their dad owned a restaurant, could never get it right. How long was that restaurant open? They didn't say, but it sounded like a number of years. Probably wouldn't still be open if that was right. I mean, a P&L is the last thing you want to talk about for like my old person, the old Bill. Like, I don't want to fuck that P&L. I hate it. Like, it's the crux. It's the spine. It's the most important part of the stool. It's the barometer of success or failure. And if you do it right, it, it should be a tool to provide data to make decisions. And if it's done right, it, it, it allows you to do that. It can prove positive or it can prove negative. I mean, it, it doesn't lie. I mean, if you put it in there, right, it doesn't lie. If you don't have a good P&L from day one, if you don't have a good 
operating forecast and an understanding of what you need to get there, you're going to struggle. And I didn't do any of that shit right or well enough when I opened Sage. It fought me the whole way through. I mean, I hired an accountant and I got it right. It just, well, I didn't start right. So it was a constant thing I had to chase. And I just vowed I'd never do that again. And then Hilton, there's obviously an entire finance team that's chasing me around. Like, why are you spending so much? And my GM's rolling his eyes at that if he hears this someday. But I'm a chef. I'm not an accountant. I understand the economics of business better now than ever, largely in part due to my time working at the Hilton. Things I learned and failed at at Sage and the implementation of my time here uh, with uh, Ray Ray's, we work we have a CFO that we work with that's just brilliant. And I've been able to um, work with him and make decisions that are economics. They are they have accounting implications and how we track and how we run our systems. A number crunch and bookkeeper. Like I but I can be effective in that way. And that's that, you know, we we have people in those roles that are experts in those roles. That's the, the foundation of kind of how we structure our our room. It's like, hey, we all have a set of things we're an expert at. We're going to trust each other to be an expert at those things. So a handful of more questions for you. Ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? I'd say probably Chris B. Because of when he hit me in life and where he was at as a cook at that point in his life, that was a big change in how I cook. At the same time, at that point in my life, I worked for a man named Travis Kawasaki, who taught me all the I shouldn't say all because you can't learn it all, but he introduced me to many Japanese and Korean methods of cooking. And that was a huge, I was a huge fan of that kind of food because I didn't eat a lot of it growing up, um, but I didn't know how to make it. So I like saw him one night at a George Clinton concert at the Newport and I knew who he was because I loved eating at that restaurant. I bought a beer and I walked up to him and I said, here, I bought you a beer. Can I work for you? He said, what the hell are you talking about? I said, I know who you are. You, you are Travis. You're the chef at Strata World Cuisine. And I want to work there. He said, come in there tomorrow at 9 a.m. I said, okay, thanks for the beer. And I went to George Clinton. And the next morning, I was at that restaurant at 9 a.m. And I told him I wanted to work part-time because I had the job at Jefferson. And he said, no, you're not working part-time. You're going to work two years full-time or I'm not even going to entertain it. I said, okay. So he's like, what do you want to learn? I said, I want to learn how to roll sushi. I want to learn how to cut fish. I want to learn just basic, like intro to Japanese and Korean flavors. Help me out. And he said, let's go. And I I went and worked as a line cook for two years and did a lot of side stuff or volunteer or go down there when I knew he was doing something that was going to happen if I was off. Like he broke down a whole tuna in the morning. I needed to be there in the morning. If I got there at four, it was done. So I would find ways to put myself in that kind of situation to learn the other big piece about saying chris b as a as a cook for sure but i mentioned earlier there were so many guest chefs that came through that kitchen when i was there i got to see like mark erickson paul sartori harvin hankey i I mean some of the chefs that he had come through there for some of those like master literal master chefs like 67 in the world level cooks dude i was like what at that one one time, my girl was pregnant. I said, can you please wait till Monday? I got to get this weekend in. She had our daughter early that next week. But I literally, I was like, I got assigned to the Mark Erickson. He was one of like only four chefs that have ever passed the certified master chef exam with a perfect score. Crispy worked for Mark Erickson for six years at Cherokee Town and Country Club down in Atlanta. So Chris had this incredible training under this, one of the literal best CMCs of all time. 
So Chris was his chef de cuisine for six years. So Chris got hired at New Albany after that gig and like moved here from Atlanta and was like young and in his prime and firing on all cylinders. And I got the chance to just kind of slide in because of the Jefferson fire and just absorb all that. We had a great pastry chef, Lori Snipe, Lori Sargent. It was an amazing time of my learning, impressionable learning years, for sure. One kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without. Cutting board, I guess. You got a clean work surface. One thing in the restaurant you would not fix yourself. Electrical. Anything. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So person gets stuck at the airport, reach out to you. Hey, where should I go eat? I'm stuck here for the night. You guys are closed. Point in this direction. I follow that question up with most people, which like, what do you like? What level do you want? You know, like if you're going like impress somebody. Yeah. I like what Dan's doing at Veritas then. If you're going to ask me it like that, 1808 up in Delaware. I love, I eat there. I drive up there to eat all the time. I love that place. I love what he's doing there. It's so consistently good, creatively approachable. I love the way he's inserted creativity with familiarity in 1808's menu. I, I think it's Josh is doing a, an amazing job there. It's not Columbus, but Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, any place that you haven't been to, want to go to, also haven't been to yet, but want to eat at. I want to eat at Vespertine in LA. I want to eat at the French Laundry because Thomas Keller's, who I point to as my hero of culinary influence. So he was my first, oh my God, look at that food. So that's my destination, which would include anywhere I go would include restaurants. So, you know, Napa, and that would be the restaurant. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. God almighty, man, that is, I've seen some crazy shit. That's for damn sure. Craziness. I mean, there's categorical, and that could go, I've seen everything, like, from people fucking in a cooler. I've seen drugs, like, more drugs going through a kitchen during a shift in a back alley. I mean, I've seen fights. I've seen people, I saw a guy split a dude's forehead open with a mop handle once just snapped him off on the face with it and i had to i had to have a hearing and he didn't even get fired because it was a union he goes oh his girlfriend broke up he had a bad day i'm like okay okay all right uh yeah i mean ice come in and wipe out a whole kitchen once deported a whole like we're closed sorry the root of that question is why i love the business though that that's that that's what when I was young and I was like, oh, so it's cool to be out late drinking rock and roll, girls cooking. I can, man, this has got a little like a rock star thing going on. It, it was very attractive to me when I was young. It, it allowed me to, it fed my rebellious, like I had a hankering for that a little bit as a young, I might still, but I'm a little more meager with it. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, whether it's fast food or something down like the candy aisle, the grocery store that you try to stay away from or cookies or anything like that, that you're like, I know it's terrible for me, but I, I just can't help it. Yeah, I drink too much and I eat cookies late. That's like what I, I love cookies. I'm a, I'm a real good cookie maker. And what happens is I have a few cocktails. I, I like vodka, tonic with a little lime, you know, little cow makes more room for cookies. So. I right now have a whole roll of frozen chocolate chip cookie dough in my freezer that at times when my judgment is slightly impaired, get baked off. And I'm like, well, we'll make six. So that way tomorrow there'll be, you know, four or five left. It doesn't always judgment and planning at those moments at times can be, you know, thwarted. Do you bake them in the oven or like I've seen this thing where people put them in an air fryer? 
I don't know. I, I won't own an air fryer. I don't know what that is. I don't understand that. I have a convection oven that's gas. I won't own electric anything. It has to be gas. I don't understand air fryers. I only have a microwave because my kids like popcorn. I don't, I go to my mom's and it's anxiety when I heard microwave. I'm like, can you just turn the, I don't even, it's so unuser friendly to me. Microwaves. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of looking back through your career, you can kind of point to like this dish is like, yeah, I definitely can do this as a profession. Like I can definitely be a chef. Hmm. I don't know if that happened. I guess it, I don't know if I, there have been dishes that have propelled like the chicken dish, the chicken that Chris Coffin ate is a story that we told at orientation on how we hired our chef, this chicken, the Ohio chicken story and how we met and like the positive nature and how that happened was part of our onboarding, for instance. So that was a, a significant dish. When I had sage, I created a pork belly dish that had cream corn and jalapeno ketchup that was well written about that was like, for me, my first time ever having a featured article about a piece of food I made. So that was like a, a really cool moment for me. But I think you'd have to go back to where that job I had between living in North Canton and Columbus, where that chef from England, she said to me, you have talent. Like that was the moment where I probably made something that I can't articulate right now. But it was more of the principle of the moment that she said, and she awakened my mind to thinking differently about the preparation of food and how it could be considered a talent and that that could be extrapolated into somehow a career. I just took it and ran. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were, was there a episode, moment, scene, stands out among all the others? Or if you weren't, is there somebody that was a uh, culinary kind of TV personality, Emeril Lagasse or Jacques Pepin or something that was on TV kind of when you were coming up that you gravitated towards? Yes, Anthony Bourdain influenced me a lot. The way he went out, I, I, you know, I hate that. I hate for him that it was that bad, but it changed my gravitational pull to his material. I don't know why, but I stopped watching it. I don't know why. I've thought about why. I don't spend a lot of time on it because I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It seems like, well, I don't know. Kitchen Confidential was a huge influence on me as a young person thinking about this as a career. So Jacques Pepin, watching that man touch food is unearthly. His efficiency with his hand movement and knife skills made me realize what mastery can look like. Um, that was an early, like, observational influence I had as a young person watching, like, you know, daytime cooking at grandma's or something. Yeah, like the earlier Julia stuff. Yen can cook. I remember that dude with that cleaver and how fast he was. It just showed me, like, wow, like, that's so crazy how fast he was. The other guy that was from the South that had that, that draw. Can't remember his name, but he had a really popular cooking show. It was like Southern based, but yeah, those things really hit me when I was young. And then Emerald, Emerald hit right when I came to Columbus and was really serious about cooking. And I just watched Food Network on repeat and I gained so much because it was just literally half hour cooking show, half hour cooking show, half hour cooking show. Half, it was like one after another. And those shows at that time of the network's infancy were really all about cooking and in building ingredients and building concepts. So I was learning it at work and I was going straight home and absorbing as much as I could just visually. And then taking those ideas and going back with influence from them and trying things on my own and just building my own style. It just kind of creates that, you know, 
And then, you know, that was that first job working for Chuck Langstaff. He also identified talent in me. That was the first person here to kind of reinforce that. I started there. I'm a green rookie. He has no idea who I am. He puts me on broiler. The saute guy named Sean and Chuck Langstaff, chef, get into it one day. Chef quits. Sean quits. Chef turns to me and being like, you ever sauteed? I'm like, sure. Never did it in a day in my life. But I just slid over and did it because I was standing there watching that guy cook for a few months. So I just, by watching, learned it. And I just slid in and just let my instincts take over and just did it. And a few weeks later, Chef Langstaff was like, good job on that, taking over and doing that. It gave me a little boost. And I was like, wow, validation, success. I'm living on my own. My mom's wrong. I can make money. I'm going home to a party with a kegger on campus. This is paradise, is the way I looked at it, at my 20-year-old self. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug all that stuff. I'm uh, Bill Glover on Facebook, at Chef Bill Glover on Instagram and Twitter. Chef Bill Glover is my, yeah, Chef Bill Glover's Twitter, Instagram, Bill Glover on Facebook. I don't use Twitter a lot. I use it to more or less follow rather than write a bunch, but I usually post on Instagram and cross post to Facebook. So and I, I usually just use it for work. I don't like say, look at my new dog. It's like shameless self-promotion. So go get it if you want. Your Instagram account's good. It's mostly places that you've gone and eaten at. Yeah, 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 yeah. I enjoy like, you know, like, like those Roy's Avenue's dinners. Like Andrew Smith's my favorite chef in Columbus. And the food he's doing is just mind-blowing. It's unreal. I appreciate you coming on, you know, had the chance to eat at gallery a few times while you were there and, you know, Ray Ray's we've eaten at a bunch. I mean, the food trucks are not too far from where we currently live. So yeah, looking forward to kind of the expansion and, and what you guys decide to branch out and move into. Sounds like things are kind of headed towards that, but keep an eye out for the announcements, you know, look forward to if you ever do any sort of guest chef dinners or anything like that too, you know, you pop up back in the kitchen, we'll be there. I have a big appetite for that stuff. I, 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 you know, there's some conversations in the air around town, like maybe jumping in on something like that. And I got a few ideas in my head. I want to get out of there. It'd be awesome to see. And, and we'll definitely be sure to be there. So can't thank you enough for your time. You've worked with a bunch of different people that have been on the podcast. Uh, some people we hope to get in the future and, and you've kind of done it all in Columbus. So it's definitely a good perspective to hear from everything that you've done, whether it's opening your own restaurant, working in a giant corporate environment, private country clubs, like all that stuff. Awesome to see you in a new role. Good luck with it. And we'll uh, we'll keep an eye out for whatever you're doing next. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a great time. I appreciate it. You're doing a great job. And really nice to see uh, some of the folks of our community get showcased like this. And I appreciate you having me on. A big thanks again to Chef Bill Glover for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day and to sit down and record with me. It's always awesome to get different perspectives within the culinary industry, whether it's somebody who not is just an executive chef or a restaurant owner or sommelier, but somebody who's done that stuff, but also done this heavy kind of culinary management stuff that Bill was talking about. And that's just stuff that you don't really hear people talk about. And I think it's super important to kind of shed some light so people can understand what all actually goes into running a restaurant and what actually all goes into running a restaurant inside a hotel. I mean, Matt Walton, you know, when he was over at the Guildhouse, you know, he kind of talked about it, you know, doing the room service stuff and the banquet stuff and all this stuff too. So I just think that's an aspect that people maybe overlook uh, within the restaurant industry. So always want to shed light on stuff that maybe people don't know or people haven't really talked about too much. So again, you could follow him on Instagram at Chef Bill Glover. Also follow Ray Ray's at 
Ray Ray's Hog Pit, Ray Ray's Meet and Three. It's also on Instagram. Bill's not super involved with that. Kind of does some loose consulting. You know, mostly bouncing ideas. Uh, around and everything, but is mainly focused on the food trucks and everything. So like I said, they were doing Battle of the Bones, uh, which was different sauces for the ribs. Uh, they did that. So past couple of weeks, so there should be a new rib sauce flavor coming out on the menu for the rest of the year. I think it was like a Tennessee dry rub. And then there was like, uh, I forget the other one. I was most intrigued by the Tennessee dry rub. I, I think their dry rub at Ray Ray's is just phenomenal. So whenever they can put that on anything and they're going to tinker with it, you know, I'm all for it. So again, make sure to check them out on Instagram, you know, head down to a Ray Ray's food truck if you've never tried them or it's been a while or anything like that. They're around and they're always doing different stuff. Make sure to follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Twitter and Facebook, we're on there too, but everything kind of links through the Instagram. Twitter and Facebook, it's at SpoonMob1, I think. And then uh, check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We got everything in order for everybody that's been on the podcast. So uh, all the way down the list would be the oldest episode. And then up at the top of the list would be the newest. And got it broken down with restaurant owners and sommeliers and different categories and stuff. So it's easy to find. Check out all the past episodes. Uh, as long as you're following, subscribing to the podcast. And we're on all the major platforms and a bunch of the smaller independent ones. You can find us, just search at Spoon Mob. But in the feed there is every episode that we've recorded, all the parts now known, all the chefs and guests. So make sure if you're new to the podcast, feel free to go back through. We got them all titled, so they're easy to find. Check out all the previous episodes. Uh, go all the way back to kind of the beginning of 2021 with Chef Jake Clevin. And, you know, I think we're getting close to about like 50 episodes of Chefs and Guests now. So make sure to check out the backlog and help support those restaurants and the people that have been on the podcast and make sure to visit those places as much as you can, whenever you can. Nothing's changed uh, for the restaurant industry since the pandemic. It's still kind of in a dire need of support and everybody else is starting to get hit with inflation and stuff too as well. So, you know, pick the your four or five, you know, favorite places and, and try and support them as much as you can without kind of putting yourself in some sort of financial hardship or disposition or something like that. But uh, we try and support everybody that we can uh, as much as we can too as well. So uh, whenever you get a chance to try out a new place or anything and they've been on the podcast or you heard about it on the podcast, just make sure to, you know, when you walk in, tell your server, hostess, whatever, you know, hey, we're super excited to be here. Heard about uh, this place on the on the Spoon Mob podcast and uh, continue to help spread the word. But appreciate everybody. We'll talk to you guys next week.